Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. By James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 6, Part 2. She is lost to me, he continued. By marriage she cannot be mine, and to seduce such innocence, to use the confidence reposed in me to work her ruin, oh, it would be a crime. Blacker than yet the world ever witnessed. Fear not, lovely girl, your virtue runs no risk from me. Not for Indies would I make that gentle bosom know the tortures of remorse. Again he paced his chamber hastily. Then, stopping, his eye fell upon the picture of his once-admired Madonna. He tore it with indignation from the wall. He threw it on the ground and spurned it from him with his foot. The prostitute! unfortunate matilda her paramour forgot that for his sake alone she had forfeited her claim to virtue and his only reason for despising her was that she had loved him much too well he threw himself into a chair which stood near the table he saw the card with elvida's address he took it up and it brought to his recollection his promise respecting a confessor he passed a few minutes in doubt but Antonia's empire over him was already too much decided to permit his making a long resistance to the idea which struck him. He resolved to be the confessor himself. He could leave the abbey unobserved without difficulty. By wrapping up his head in his cowl, he hoped to pass through the streets without being recognized. By taking these precautions, and by recommending secrecy to Elvida's family, he doubted not to keep Madrid in ignorance that he had broken his vow never to see the outside of the abbey walls. Matilda was the only person whose vigilance he dreaded, but by informing her at the refectory that during the whole of that day business would confine him to his cell, he thought himself secure from her wakeful jealousy. Accordingly, at the hours when the Spaniards are generally taking their siesta, he ventured to quit the abbey by a private door the key of which was in his possession. The cowl of his habit was thrown over his face. From the heat of the weather the streets were almost totally deserted. The monk met with few people, found the Strada de San Iago, and arrived without accident at Doña Elvira's door. He rang, was admitted, and immediately ushered into an upper apartment. It was here that he ran the greatest risk of a discovery. Had Leonella been at home, she would have recognized him directly. Her communicative disposition would never have permitted her to rest, 
till all Madrid was informed that Ambrosio had ventured out of the abbey and visited her sister. Fortune here stood the monk's friend. On Leonella's return home, she found a letter instructing her that a cousin was just dead, who had left what little he possessed between herself and Elvira. To secure this bequest, she was obliged to set out for Cordova without losing a moment. Amidst all her foibles, her heart was truly warm and affectionate, and she was unwilling to quit her sister in so dangerous a state. But Elvira insisted upon her taking the journey, conscious that, in her daughter's forlorn situation, no increase of fortune, however trifling, ought to be neglected. Accordingly, Leonella left Madrid, sincerely grieved at her sister's illness, and giving some few sighs to the memory of the amiable but inconstant Don Cristobal. She was fully persuaded that at first she had made a terrible breach in his heart, but hearing nothing more of him, she supposed that he had quitted the pursuit, disgusted by the lowness of her origin, and knowing upon other terms than marriage, he had nothing to hope from such a dragon of virtue as she professed herself. Or else, that, being naturally capricious and changeable, the remembrance of her charms had been effaced from the Conde's heart by those of some newer beauty. Whatever was the cause of her losing him, she lamented it sorely. She strove in vain, as she assured everybody who was kind enough to listen to her, to tear his image from her too susceptible heart. She affected the airs of a lovesick virgin, and carried them all to the most ridiculous excess. She heaved lamentable sighs, walked with her arms folded, uttered long soliloquies, and her discourse generally turned upon some forsaken maid who expired of a broken heart. Her fiery locks were always ornamented with a garland of willow. Every evening she was seen straying upon the banks of a rivulet by moonlight, and she declared herself a violent admirer of murmuring streams and nightingales. Of lonely haunts and twilight groves, places which pale passion loves. Such was the state of Leonella's mind, when obliged to quit Madrid. Elvira was out of patience at all these follies, and endeavoured at persuading her to act like a reasonable woman. Her advice was thrown away. Leonella assured her, at parting, that nothing could make her forget the perfidious Don Cristobal. In this point she was fortunately mistaken. An honest youth of Cordova, journeyman to an apothecary, found that her fortune would be sufficient to set him up in a genteel shop of his own. In consequence of this reflection, he avowed himself her admirer. Leonella was not inflexible. The ardor of his sighs melted her heart, and she soon consented to make him the happiest of mankind. She wrote to inform her sister of her marriage, but for reasons which will be explained hereafter, Elvira never answered her letter. Ambrosio was conducted into the antechamber to that where Elvira was reposing. The female domestic who had admitted him left him alone, whilst she announced his arrival to her mistress. Antonia, who had been by her mother's bedside, immediately came to him. "'Pardon me, father,' said she, advancing towards him. When recognizing his features, she stopped suddenly, and uttered a cry of joy. "'Is it possible?' she continued. 
Do not my eyes deceive me? Has the worthy Ambrosio broken through his resolution, that he may soften the agonies of the best of women? What pleasure will this visit give my mother? Let me not delay for a moment the comfort which your piety and wisdom will afford her. Thus saying, she opened the chamber door, presented to her mother her distinguished visitor, and, having placed an armchair by the side of the bed, withdrew into another apartment. Elvira was highly gratified by this visit. Her expectations had been raised high by general report, but she found them far exceeded. Ambrosio, endowed by nature with powers of pleasing, exerted them to the utmost while conversing with Antonia's mother. With persuasive evidence, he calmed every fear and dissipated every scruple. He bade her reflect on the infinite mercy of her judge, despoiled death of his darts and terrors, and taught her to view without shrinking the abyss of eternity on whose brink she then stood. Elvira was absorbed in attention and delight. While she listened to his exhortations, confidence and comfort stole insensibly into her mind. She unbosomed to him without hesitation her cares and apprehensions, the latter respecting a future life he had already quieted, and he now removed the former which she felt for the concerns of this. She trembled for Antonia. She had none to whose care she could recommend her, save to the Marquise de las Cisternas and her sister Leonella. The protection of the one was very uncertain, and as to the other, though fond of her niece, Leonella was so thoughtless and vain as to make her an improper person to have the sole direction of a girl so young and ignorant of the world. The friar no sooner learned the cause of her alarms than he begged her to make herself easy upon that head. He doubted not being able to secure for Antonia a safe refuge in the house of one of his penitents, the Marchioness of Villafranca. This was a lady of acknowledged virtue, remarkable for strict principles and extensive charity. Should accident deprive her of this resource, he engaged to procure Antonia a reception in some respectable convent, that is to say, in quality of boarder. For Elvira had declared herself no friend to a monastic life, and the monk was either candid or complacent enough to allow that her disapprobation was not unfounded. These proofs of the interest which he felt for her completely won Elvira's heart. In thanking him, she exhausted every expression which gratitude could furnish, and protested that now she should resign herself with tranquillity to the grave. Ambrosio rose to take leave. He promised to return the next day at the same hour, but requested that his visits might be kept secret. "'I am unwilling,' said he, that my breaking through a rule imposed by necessity should be generally known. Had I not resolved never to quit my convent except upon circumstances as urgent as that which has conducted me to your door, I should be frequently summoned upon insignificant occasions. That time would be engrossed by the curious, the unoccupied, and the fanciful, which I now pass at the bedside of the sick, in comforting the expiring penitent and clearing the passage to eternity from thorns. Elvira commended equally his prudence and compassion, promising to conceal carefully the honor of his visits. The monk then gave her his benediction and retired from the chamber. 
In the ante-room he found Antonia. He could not refuse himself the pleasure of passing a few moments in her society. He bade her take comfort, for that her mother seemed composed and tranquil, and he hoped that she might yet do well. He inquired who attended her, and engaged to send the physician of his convent to see her, one of the most skillful in Madrid. He then launched out in Elvida's commendation, praised her purity and fortitude of mind, and declared that she had inspired him with the highest esteem and reverence. Antonia's innocent heart swelled with gratitude. Joy danced in her eyes, where a tear still sparkled. The hopes which he gave her of her mother's recovery, the lively interest which he seemed to feel for her, and the flattering way in which she was mentioned by him, added to the report of his judgment and virtue, and to the impression made upon her by his eloquence, confirmed the favorable opinion with which his first appearance had inspired Antonia. She replied with diffidence, but without restraint. She feared not to relate to him all her little sorrows, all her little fears and anxieties, and she thanked him for his goodness with all the genuine warmth which favors kindle in a young and innocent heart. Such alone knows how to estimate benefits at their full value. They who are conscious of mankind's perfidy and selfishness ever receive an obligation with apprehension and disgust. They suspect that some secret motive must lurk behind it. They express their thanks with restraint and caution, and fear to praise a kind action to its full extent, aware that on some future day a return may be required. Not so Antonia. She thought the world was composed only of those who resembled her, and that vice existed was to her still a secret. The monk had been of service to her. He said that he wished her well. She was grateful for his kindness, and thought that no terms were strong enough to be the vehicle of her thanks. With what delight did Ambrosio listen to the declaration of her artless gratitude! The natural grace of her manners, the unequalled sweetness of her voice, her modest vivacity, her unstudied elegance, her expressive countenance and intelligent eyes, united to inspire him with pleasure and admiration, while the solidity and correctness of her remarks received additional beauty from the unaffected simplicity of the language in which they were conveyed. Ambrosio was at length obliged to tear himself from this conversation which possessed for him but too many charms. He repeated to Antonia his wishes that his visits should not be made known, which desire she promised to observe. He then quitted the house, while his enchantress hastened to her mother, ignorant of the mischief which her beauty had caused. She was eager to know Elvida's opinion of the man whom she had praised in such enthusiastic terms, and was delighted to find it equally favorable, if not even more so than her own. "'Even before he spoke,' said Elvida, "'I was prejudiced in his favor.' The fervor of his exhortations, dignity of his manner, and closeness of his reasoning were very far from inducing me to alter my opinion. His fine and full-toned voice struck me particularly, but surely, Antonia, I have heard it before. It seemed perfectly familiar to my ear. Either I must have known the abbot in former times, or his voice bears a wonderful resemblance to that of some other to whom I have often listened." There were certain tones which touched my very heart, and made me feel sensations so singular that I strive in vain to account for them. 
My dearest mother, it produced the same effect upon me. Yet certainly neither of us ever heard his voice till we came to Madrid. I suspect that what we attribute to his voice really proceeds from his pleasant manners, which forbid our considering him as a stranger. I know not why, but I feel more at my ease while conversing with him than I usually do with people who are unknown to me. I feared not to repeat to him all my childish thoughts, and somehow I felt confident that he would hear my folly with indulgence. Oh, I was not deceived in him. He listened to me with such an air of kindness and attention. He answered me with such gentleness, such condescension. He did not call me an infant and treat me with contempt, as our cross old confessor at the castle used to do. I verily believe that if I had lived in Mercia a thousand years, I never should have liked that fat old Father Dominic. I confess that Father Dominic had not the most pleasing manners in the world, but he was honest, friendly, and well-meaning. Ah, my dear mother, those qualities are so common. God grant, my child, that experience may not teach you to think them rare and precious. I have found them but too much so. But tell me, Antonia, why is it impossible for me to have seen the abbot before? Because since the moment when he entered the abbey he has never been on the outside of its walls. He told me just now that, from his ignorance of the streets, he had some difficulty to find the Strada di San Iago, though so near the abbey. All this is possible and still I may have seen him before he entered the abbey. In order to come out, it was rather necessary that he should first go in. Holy Virgin! As you say, that is very true. Oh, but might he not have been born in the abbey? Elvira smiled. Why, not very easily. Stay, stay! Now I recollect how it was. He was put into the abbey quite a child. The common people say that he fell from heaven, and was sent as a present to the Capuchins by the Virgin. That was very kind of her. And so he fell from heaven, Antonia? He must have had a terrible tumble. Many do not credit this, and I fancy, my dear mother, that I must number you among the unbelievers. Indeed, as our landlady told my aunt, the general idea is that his parents, being poor and unable to maintain him, left him just born at the abbey door. The late superior, from pure charity, had him educated in the convent, and he proved to be a model of virtue and piety, and learning, and I know not what else besides. In consequence, he was first received as a brother of the order, and not long ago was chosen abbot. However, whether this account or the other is the true one, at least all agree that when the monks took him under their care, he could not speak. Therefore, you could not have heard his voice before he entered the monastery, because at that time he had no voice at all. Upon my word, Antonia, you argue very closely. Your conclusions are infallible. I did not suspect you of being so able a logician. Ah, you are mocking me but so much the better. It delights me to see you in spirits. Besides, you seem tranquil and easy, and I hope that you will have no more convulsions. Oh, I was sure the abbot's visit would do you good. It has indeed done me good, my child. 
he has quieted my mind upon some points which agitated me and i already feel the effects of his attention my eyes grow heavy and i think i can sleep a little draw the curtains my antonia but if i should not wake before midnight do not sit up with me i charge you antonia promised to obey her and having received her blessing drew the curtains of the bed she then seated herself in silence at her embroidery frame and beguiled the hours with building castles in the air her spirits were enlivened by the evident change for the better in elvida and her fancy presented her with visions bright and pleasing in these dreams ambrosio made no despicable figure she thought of him with joy and gratitude but for every idea which fell to the friar's share at least two were unconsciously bestowed upon lorenzo thus passed the time till the bell in the neighboring steeple of the capuchin cathedral announced the hour of midnight antonia remembered her mother's injunctions and obeyed them though with reluctance she undrew the curtains with caution elvira was enjoying a profound and quiet slumber her cheek glowed with health's returning colors a smile declared that her dreams were pleasant and as antonia bent over her she fancied that she heard her name pronounced she kissed her mother's forehead softly and retired to her chamber there she knelt before a statue of saint rosalia her patroness she recommended herself to the protection of heaven and as had been her custom from infancy concluded her devotions by chanting the following stanzas midnight hymn now all is hushed the solemn chime no longer swells the nightly gale thy awful presence our sublime with spotless heart once more i hail tis now the moment still and dread when sorcerers use their baleful power when graves give up their buried dead to profit by the sanctioned hour from guilt and guilty thoughts secure to duty and devotion true with bosom light and conscience pure repose thy gentle aid i woo good angels take my thanks that still the snares of vice i view with scorn thanks that to-night as free from ill i sleep as when i woke at morn yet may not my unconscious breast harbor some guilt to me unknown some wish impure which unrepressed you blush to see and i to own if such there be in gentle dream instruct my feet to shun the snare bid truth upon my errors beam and deign to make me still your care chase from my peaceful bed away the witching spell a foe to rest the nightly goblin wanton fay the ghost in pain and fiend unblessed let not the tempter in mine ear pour lessons of unhallowed joy let not the nightmare wandering near my couch the calm of sleep destroy let not some horrid dream affright with strange fantastic forms mine eyes but rather bid some vision bright display the bliss of yonder skies show me the crystal domes of heaven the worlds of light where angels lie show me the lot to mortals given who guiltless live who guiltless die 
then show me how a seat to gain amidst those blissful realms of air teach me to shun each guilty stain and guide me to the good and fair so every morn and night my voice to heaven the grateful strain shall raise in you as guardian powers rejoice good angels and exalt your praise so will i strive with zealous fire each vice to shun each fault correct will love the lessons you inspire and prize the virtues you protect then when at length by high command my body seeks the grave's repose when death draws nigh with friendly hand my failing pilgrim eyes to close pleased that my soul escapes the wreck silas will i my life resign and yield to god my spirit back as pure as when it first was mine having finished her usual devotions antonia retired to bed sleep soon stole over her senses and for several hours she enjoyed that calm repose which innocence alone can know and for which many a monarch with pleasure would exchange his crown End of chapter 6, part 2. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.